Chapter 15 Erard de Sivray said to me, My lord, if you think that neither I nor my heirs will incur reproach for it, I will go and fetch you help from the Comte d'Anjou, whom I see in the fields over there. I said to him, My dear man, it seems to me you would win great honor for yourself if you went for help to save our lives. Your own, by the way, is also in great danger. Joinville, Histoire de Saint-Louis, 46-26 after that evening of the Templars I had only fleeting conversations with Belbo at Pilades, where I went less and less often because I was working on my thesis. One day there was a big march against fascist conspiracies. It was to start at the university, and all the left-wing intellectuals had been invited to take part. Magnificent police presence, but apparently the tacit understanding was to let things take their course. Typical of those days, the demonstration had no permit, but if nothing serious happened, the police would just watch, making sure the marchers didn't transgress any of the unwritten boundaries drawn through downtown Milan. There were a lot of territorial compromises back then. The protesters operated in an area beyond Largo Augusto. The fascists were entrenched in Piazza San Babila and its neighboring streets. If anybody crossed the line, there were incidents. Otherwise, nothing happened. It was like a lion and a lion tamer. We usually believe that the tamer is attacked by the lion, and that the tamer stops the attack by raising his whip or firing a blank. Wrong. The lion was fed and sedated before it entered the cage, and doesn't feel like attacking anybody. Like all animals, it has its own space. If you don't invade that space, the lion remains calm. When the tamer steps forward, invading it, the lion roars. The tamer then raises his whip, but also takes a step backward, as if in expectation of a charge whereupon the lion calms down. A simulated revolution must also have its rules. I went to the demonstration, but didn't march with any of the groups. Instead, I stood at the edge of Piazzo Santo Stefano, where reporters, editors, and artists who had come to show their solidarity were milling around, the whole clientele of Pilades. I found myself standing next to Belbo and a woman I had often seen him with at the bar, who I thought was his companion. She later disappeared and now I know why, having read about it in the file on Dr. Wagner. "'What are you doing here?' I asked. "'You know how it is,' he said, smiling, embarrassed. "'We have to save our souls somehow. Crede fermiter et pecca fortiter. Doesn't this scene remind you of something?' I looked around. It was a sunny afternoon, one of those days when Milan is beautiful, yellow facades and a softly metallic sky. The police across the square were armored with helmets and plastic shields that gave off glints like steel. A plainclothes officer girded with a gaudy tricolor sash strutted up and down in front of his men. I turned and looked at the head of the march. People weren't moving. They were marking time. They were lined up in ranks, but the rows were irregular, almost serpentine, and the crowd seemed to bristle with pikes, standards, banners, sticks. Impatient groups chanted rhythmic slogans. Along the flanks of the procession, activists darted back and forth, wearing red kerchiefs over their faces, motley shirts, studded belts, and jeans that had known much rain and sun. Even the rolled-up flags that concealed the incongruous weapons looked like dabs of color on a palette. I thought of Dufy, his gaiety. Freely associating, I went from Dufy to Guillaume Dufay. I had the impression of being in a Flemish miniature. In the little crowds gathered on either side of the marchers, I glimpsed some androgynous women waiting for the great display of daring they had been promised. 
But all this went through my mind in a flash, as if I were reliving some other experience without recognizing it. "'It's the taking of Ascalon, isn't it?' Belbo said. "'By the Lord St. James, my good sir,' I replied, "'this is truly a crusader's combat. I do believe that this night some of these men will be in paradise.' "'No doubt,' Belbo said. "'But can you tell me where the Saracens are?' "'Well, the police are definitely Teutonic,' I observed, "'which would make us the hordes of Alexander Nevsky. But I'm getting my texts mixed up. Look at that group over there. They must be the companions of the Comte d'Artois, eager to enter the fray, for they will brook no offense, and already they head for the enemy lines, shouting threats to provoke the infidel. That was when it happened. I don't remember it that clearly. The marchers had started moving, and a group of activists with chains and ski masks began to force their way through the police lines toward Piazza San Babila, yelling. The lion was on the move. The front line of police parted, and the fire hoses appeared. The first ball bearings, then the first stones, came hurtling from the forward positions of the demonstration. A cordon of police advanced, swinging clubs, and the procession recoiled. At that moment in the distance from the far end of Via Laghetto, a shot was heard. Maybe it was only a tire exploding or a firecracker. Maybe it was a popgun shot from one of those groups that in a few years would regularly be using P-38s. Panic. The police drew their weapons, trumpet blasts for a charge were heard, the march split into two groups, one militants who were ready to fight, and one all the others who considered their duty done. I found myself running along Via Larga with the mad fear of being hit by some blunt object such as a club. Suddenly Belbo and his companion were beside me, running fast but without panic. At the corner of Via Rastrelli, Belbo grabbed me by the arm. This way, kid, he said. I wanted to ask why. Via Larga seemed much more spacious and peopled, and claustrophobia overcame me in the maze of alleys between Via Pecorari and the Archbishop's Palace. It seemed to me that where Belbo was going there were fewer places to hide or blend in if the police intercepted us. But he signaled me to be quiet, turned two or three corners, and gradually slowed down. We found ourselves walking unhurriedly, right behind the cathedral, where traffic was normal and no echoes came from the battle taking place less than two hundred meters away. Still silent, we walked around the cathedral and finally came to the side facing the Galleria. Belbo bought a bag of corn and began feeding the pigeons with seraphic pleasure. We blended into the Saturday crowd completely. Belbo and I were in jackets and ties, and the girl had on the uniform of a Milanese lady, a grey turtleneck with a strand of pearls, cultured or maybe not. Belbo introduced us. This is Sandra. You two know each other? By sight? Hi. You see, Kasabin, Belbo said to me then, you must never flee in a straight line. Napoleon III, following the example of the Savoys in Turin, had Paris disemboweled, then turned it into the network of boulevards we all admire today, a masterpiece of intelligent city planning, except that those broad, straight streets are also ideal for controlling angry crowds. Where possible, even the side streets were made broad and straight, like the Champs-Élysées. Where it wasn't possible, in the little streets of the Latin Quarter, for example, that's where May 68 was seen to its best advantage. When you flee, head for alleys. No police force can guard them all, and even the police are afraid to enter them in small numbers. If you run into a few on their own, they're more frightened than you are, and both parties take off in opposite directions. Any time you're going to a mass rally in an area you don't know well, reconnoiter the neighborhood the day before and stand at the corner where the little streets start. Did you take a course in Bolivia, or what? 
Survival techniques are learned only in childhood, unless as an adult you enlist in the Green Berets. I had some bad experiences during the war when the partisans were active around— Name left blank. He said, naming a town between Monferrato and the Longue. We had been evacuated from the city in forty-three, a great idea, exactly the time and place to savor everything. Mass arrests, the SS, gunfire in the streets. One evening I was going up the hill to get some fresh milk from a farm, and I heard a sound up in the trees. Fur, fur. I realized that some men on a distant hill were machine-gunning the railroad line in the valley behind me. My instinct was to run or just dive to the ground. I made a mistake. I ran toward the valley, and suddenly I heard a chuck-chuck-chuck in the field around me. Some of the shots were falling short of the railroad. That's when I learned that if they're shooting from a high hill down at a valley, then you should run uphill. The higher you go, the higher the bullets will be over your head. Once my grandmother was caught in a shootout between fascists and partisans deployed on opposite sides of a cornfield. Wherever she ran, she risked stopping a bullet. So she just flung herself down in the middle of the field, right in the line of fire, and lay there for ten minutes, her face in the dirt, hoping that neither side would advance very far. She was lucky. When you learn these things as a child, they are hardwired in your nervous system. So you were in the resistance. So you were in the resistance. As a spectator, he said. I sensed a slight embarrassment in his voice. In 1943 I was eleven, and at the end of the war barely thirteen. Too young to take part, but old enough to follow everything with, how shall I put it, photographic attention. What else could I do? I watched. And ran. Like today. You should write about it instead of editing other people's books. It's all been told, Kasabin. If I'd been twenty back then, in the fifties, I'd have written a poetic memoir. Luckily, I was born too late for that. By the time I was old enough to write, all I could do was read books that were already written. On the other hand, I could also have ended up on that hill with a bullet in my head. From which side? I asked, then immediately regretted the question. Sorry, I was just kidding. No, you weren't. Sure, today I know, but what did I know then? You can be obsessed by remorse all your life. Not because you chose the wrong thing, you can always repent, atone, but because you never had the chance to prove to yourself that you would have chosen the right thing. I was a potential traitor. What truth does that entitle me now to teach to others? Excuse me, I said, but potentially you were also a Jack the Ripper. This is neurotic, unless your remorse is based on something specific. What does that mean? But speaking of neurosis, this evening there's a dinner party for Dr. Wagner. Let's take a taxi at Piazza della Scala. Coming, Sandra? Dr. Wagner, I asked, about to take my leave of them. In person? Yes, he's in Milan for a few days, and maybe I'll be able to persuade him to give us some of his unpublished essays for a little volume. It would be a real coup. So Belbo was in contact with Dr. Wagner even then. I wondered if that was the evening Wagner psychoanalyzed Belbo free of charge, without either of them knowing it. But perhaps this happened later. In any case, that was the first time I heard Belbo talk about his childhood in Name Omitted. Strange, he talked about running away, investing it with a kind of heroism, in the glorious light of memory. But the memory had come back to him only after, with me as accomplice but also as witness, he had unheroically, if wisely, run away again.